This is Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's podcast series interviewing clean tech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Tesla. Just kidding. <laughs> Today we're talking with Galileo Russell, founder, CEO, director, producer, host of Hyperchange TV. Uh, not to put any pressure on you, Galileo, but you know you you obviously do tremendous work. We we really a lot of people value the analysis, the time you put into your videos, your your Tesla analysis, other analyses. Um, of course, uh, I think part of it is your presentation ability. You're a great presenter, but also part of it is just that you really like to dive deep into deep into topics. I think the first story, and the numbers of them and the numbers really do analysis. I think that one. Perhaps the first, Brian. the first video I think perhaps someone sent over for of you was from EV Annex. Um, Matt Pressman is awesome, really awesome guy. loves loves your work, and he he yeah he did a piece on on Jim Chanos, and you you went through and debunked all of his fa- <laughs> all of his favorite talking points, and it was just yeah. a tremendous takedown. Uh, but anyway, so. Kanan watches you all the time, and he's also launching Clean Technica TV with us. Yeah, we're uh, launching. I'm doing the YouTube channel, so uh, this is our new uh, YouTube studio that we're going to be using. Oh, and, awesome! Yeah, yeah, I just tweeted it. I gave you guys a shout out. And yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, and so that was just a preview of what's to come from the yeah the preview. Out of the Fremont it looked factory. dope. It was a great. We got invited to to tour the factory. We were pushing them for months to 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 set up something. Um, yeah, that's sick. That's unbelievable but, access. Yeah, we got uh, honestly. Uh, extremely awesome 45 minutes or something with Jerome Guillen sitting oh in- sorry Jerome yeah yeah yes wow. his I mean number two or number three at the company depending on how you look at it he's head of automotive um so we have a lot of awesome content from that to roll out he, he's sitting there in the corner with the head of model y model three model you know <laughs> all of these like top wow. program managers very cool and then we had a super custom tour very detailed tour of the factory and then the seat factory and initially Kanan was you know it was not he was i let him know sort of late that we were going to do this and he was like oh i'll come over from amsterdam you know (laughs) amsterdam i was like oh let's check you know if we can get video i don't know and we checked and they were like yeah i don't know about video but we booked the flight anyway. We he went and uh, we he recorded almost the whole day. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So we have we have like a whole day of recording from factories and it was so crazy. Uh, Zach was yeah. doing the interview, to talking to the engineers and the people, and I was just walking around with the camera trying to get as much good a uh, video of everything as possible. So we shot in full 4K. Should be complete eye candy when it's once it's released. We really yeah. have like at least 25 uh, minutes of really good sharp video that we. Uh, hope to use to re- really explain from beginning to end how things work in the factory and what that looks like. So and it was really, lucky, it was for, lucky. Uh, Kyle and I were there, you know, I've done, obviously been in this business for a decade. So I have a lot of my own questions to ask. Kyle Field has, has worked in, in factories for, he's, he has a tremendous manufacturing background and obviously one of our top reporters um, on Clean Technica. So we had the two of us able to ask a lot of questions for, of top engineers across the factory and, uh, really tremendous insight, and fr- frankly, the takeaway from it all is, you know, you go out, get out of there feeling much more bullish about <laughs> the company than you did even going in, and that's you know coming from a bull. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's a big deal, I think, in my opinion. Uh, Ross Gerber had a sim- similar kind of impression. I'm not sure how thorough his his walkthrough was, but he he spent a bit of time there. I think the day after us, it was just chance. Uh, but anyway, wow. so let's jump in. I'm going to let Kanan. Ka- 
focus the the interview a bit you know sort of guide it since uh, he's got a lot of questions related to your previous episodes and and your channel and uh, i'll jump in too much probably sounds great yeah so um galley i've seen you've been around everywhere i mean uh, you've been on bloomberg bloomberg tv you uh, consult regularly for cheddar and I think that's actually one of the things you started out with. Uh, could you tell us about that and in general how you started out? Um, yeah, so I started out actually writing for Seeking Alpha, sort of ironically, like maybe 10 years ago at this point, which sounds crazy, or maybe like eight years ago, and just started blogging there actually a lot about Tesla. And then through that sort of got a bunch of introductions to other people in the industry. And, and like that was sort of like my stepping stone, I would say, to eventually launching a YouTube channel. Yeah. And has Seeking Alpha gotten that... I mean, it's always been quite anti-Tesla. I mean, we were covering this guy, Jay, Jay Peterson, I think his name. John Peterson. John oh, Pe- I've gotten plenty of beef with him. Yeah, we, we were debunking <laughs> his, his, his Seeking Alpha articles like eight years ago or something. So it's always had this kind of fringe. But has it gotten more restrictive for people who are pro-Tesla, bullish on Tesla? Or is it... Yeah. I, so I actually don't write for Seeking Alpha anymore as of like a year or two ago because it, they were like, I felt like I was being censored. Every single bullish Tesla article was like so, so such a pain to publish. And they had so many, like, frankly, that I thought were illegitimate concerns with my articles. And so I felt like I was being censored. I was like, isn't the whole point for me to just explain my investment ideas and not have the editor input overlay his opinion? And so and I just stopped writing some more. Really ridiculous anti, like some of the anti-Tesla pieces, like they look like they came from a fifth grader. Like it's like, what is this? This is not a not a reasonable article. And then then you hear from people like you and and others who are getting like these these requests for edits that don't make or you know basically the feeling censored. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, and I actually had a call with their whoever editor person after I quit, and I was like just kind of explaining like which articles I thought in detail and like just explain to them like their reputation is kind of like I think dramatically falling just based on the lack of the biased Tesla coverage which is super unfortunate because I love their mission but um that is what it is so I owe Seeking Alpha thanks to like for my start for introducing me to Cheddar but unfortunately like I don't work with them anymore yeah, because Cheddar, yeah, you've been there more times than I can count. And uh, especially battling Mark Spiegel, the short, the, that video, that was just hero material for the Wall of Fame. That was just an amazing <laughs> moment, uh, like a complete success or you completely beat him. I mean, I don't think he had any very good arguments that stuck at all. That was, yeah, <laughs> definitely yeah. Uh, what a moment. Spiegel. No comment. <laughs> I'm like, I'm refraining my, I really don't like to get personal. And, and some of these people get so personal. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it's a strategy or just how they are, but, but we, we get all these personal attacks for, for no legitimate reason, in my opinion. But, but it just seems like he's gotten a bit more extreme. Like he used to come across to me as more of a kind of normal Wall Streeter, and I mean, I don't, I don't follow this stuff on Twitter much, so I don't see, I don't really know the history, but, but the stuff I've seen more recently, is like, it's like, whoa, that's like, that's getting like sort of wild extreme with his, uh, his yeah, he's out of control. Like I got an invite to go on the Quoth the Raven podcast with him. And then this was recently after our debate. And I was like, dude, I just don't want to go on a podcast with him. Cause he's going to like yell and just be angry. And like, I do this for fun. And like, I don't want to just be in a bad mood and then 
they like he found out that I didn't want to do the debate with him. And then he goes on this whole Twitter rampage calling me like all these things I don't even want to say on the podcast yeah. just because I wouldn't go on. I was like, you're kind of proving my point. Proving yeah. my point well, <laughs> I well, long before electric vehicles, before renewable energy, I covered climate science uh, thoroughly. And um, something I learned back then is sometimes just being having a debate is already you're already putting yourself on a losing foot if you're legitimizing a kind of something that you think is illegitimate that, that is exactly yeah so so just getting on a debate stage you can already be losing if if you do that in some cases and it sounds like you know we're we're quite similar we we do this for fun of course it turned into a great you know career and stuff like that but it's also supposed to always be fun so try to avoid stuff that's sort of just drags you down but i think yeah. ross i think ross gerber the day that i interviewed him for the podcast they there's something new some new thing i think on youtube and I think he was on a debating with Mark Spiegel on a, on a, a new, real vision, a new, yeah, a new show that launched. And, uh, you know, I mean, all for it. If you, if you feel passionate about going out there and debating, I just feel like you're, you, when you're lot, when you're, when you're getting on that stage, you're already putting the frame in a lopsided way and you want to straighten the frame out and not, not continue to tilt the picture. But anyway, uh, keep going. We'll get it on to another more fun topics. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, actually, a week later, we actually uh, met right before and during the Model Y event and actually found out you edit all your own videos. How does that work for you? Yeah, so I edit all my own videos. And I mean, I went to NYU for finance, but I took a cell phone cinema class just like randomly as one of my like art credits. And that has turned out to be my most useful class because now I that's when I started video editing videos. And now I just edit all my own videos. And um, yeah, I love it because then I get like full control over exactly the way and what I want to like get across to my audience. And so and I can be like a one man team. So I really value that. Yeah, I was pretty surprised by that. I mean, I'm guessing that's a lot of work. I'm about to find out, find out myself probably. But uh, yeah, yeah just and it's, very it's so funny. I, I, cause I have a comment on that because everyone's always like, oh, you do. And I'm sure you guys experience this, too. It's like, oh, so are you doing hyper change full time? And everyone's like, uh, like, OK. Like they're always confused. It doesn't seem like a full-time job. And they're like, wait, you put out four videos a week? You're like, dude, that's so much work. But they don't think that that's enough work to be a full-time job. So it's like, yeah, no, it's such in-depth analysis. You go so deep into the numbers. I'm worried that if I just focus so much on making videos that I wouldn't have time to get to that depth that people really want to find out about. Yeah, it's always a give and take of like, what's the quality of the video versus like, I actually, my real job is to do research, you know, and just the video is just documenting the research I'm doing, basically. You're doing a tremendous job. I, it looks like you've, you've really landed in a wonderful sweet spot. I understand you're trying to expand. I mean, not trying to expand a bit maybe, but you know, you, you don't just look at Tesla. What's your overall mission? What's your overall dream vision with, with hyperchange? Yeah, so but my hyperchange is, is sort of this theory that I've in, like kind of made up in college, like it's just a word I made up of how I describe the economic era we live in, which is just accelerating technological disruption, which you could say is always true. But I just think now is just particularly the way we live our lives is changing so dramatically per generation, that this is a super special moment where like, <clears throat> a lot of industries are going to fall and get reinvented. And so I think you have this like, technological software disruption that's happening and then on the other end we have like we've built up massive expansion throughout society for the past couple hundred years the industrial revolution but we built that all on fossil fuels and i'm not that's not bad like i'm stoked we're at where we are but we need to reinvent all of these industries to make them sustainable so 
I think that's like hyper changed these industries like energy, transportation. Um, and so that is the lens of the way I look at the economy. And I think the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. So there's huge problems with all these industries, but every problem has a counter opportunity, which results in a massive company to fix that problem. And so that's exactly why I think Tesla is so fascinating to me because they are like the pinnacle of tackling the world's biggest problem. And I think that is a huge opportunity to create one of the world's largest companies. The funny thing as I'm listening is how much it sounds how much it sounds like you're saying the same kind of thing as deep as Nancy Fund of of DBO partners from with totally different language. Like <laughs> it seems like the, the exact same vision and, and understanding with a with a different different language approach and different cultural approach. But but you obviously you appealed to uh um millennials quite a bit uh more than probably CNBC or, or others do. Um you I, I saw a number of studies that showed millennials are heavily, like heavily invested in Tesla. Like this is, uh, this is the, st- this is the company, the stock of, of millennials. Um, what do you think it is that, you know, I mean, why do you think that, what do you think that is? I, I don't know. I think Tesla like captures a lot of people's minds and hearts in weird ways. Like it's what, what they're building. I mean, they have this like Apple-esque sort of weird, like, product beauty and like focus and minimalism that I think really were the iPhone generation or like I I'm 26. I consider myself like a millennial with all these people investing in Tesla. And like, I think that's a huge part of it. And I think the other part of it is like you have Elon Musk who is an incredible inventor and like, he's just inventing. Like I think of Tesla's is almost like spaceships for humans. I don't know where I saw that, but like, I really think that's kind of like what they are. So I don't know. There's just not many other cool, exciting companies like that that are doing making an impact. So I think that generates hype. Millennials are optimistic. They're thinking about the future, you know, where things are headed. And I think Tesla is sort of showing them that future. Kanan, I don't even know. You're not even a technically a millennial, right, Kanan? Or are you? Are you uh, still, 22. Is so, that still uh, in the batch? Gen Z, like I'm. I'm on the top. I'm. I'm near the top end, 37. But I. I'm not. I think there's a. You may be in a new new group, whatever. But it's all just labeling. It's all just categorizing. Uh, but you're, but it's, it's that kind of range. Um, what's your, what's your, uh, your next question kind of? Yeah, actually I was hoping to dig in a little bit with a few questions into your uh, analysis of Neo. So actually I think, especially in the beginning, like when they IPO, you made a really good analysis and you know, um, some of the numbers, they seemed at first a bit misleading and, uh, the way you put, uh, broke it all down into saying that, you know, they're supposed to be building a $60,000 car and that. At that point, at the IPO, it seemed like it cost like $250,000 to build each car. I really think that was like, these are the numbers that people are like really looking for that you really brought out, you know? And um, now things have changed after the Q3 numbers. You're a lot more bullish now from what I understand. And so I have two questions. Um, do you think they can reach the 45,000 uh, deliveries as stated in the management guidance? the first one yeah well first i would say like i don't know if i'm bullish or bearish on neo i'm just like fascinated by what they are i think they have a big opportunity i have no idea if they're gonna hit their guidance of forty-five thousand cars honestly like i i just have no idea but uh because i'm not in china like there's not monthly sales estimates other than what neo says but you know neo is a really interesting company because they're an example of how hard it is like i call it the honeymoon phase like you unveil an ev and everyone gets so pumped and excited but it's like you had an unlimited budget to build one car that's vaporware that doesn't work that's easy and then everyone in the media gets hyped up on the tesla killer tons of clicks so that's the whole system but then phase two that's the honeymoon period is like okay now we have to build this deliver thousands of them make customers happy and show profitability 
And that's like really, really hard, which Tesla has gone through. And it's a testament to how incredible the progress Tesla's made is. But now Neo is going through that struggle. And so they're losing 200, they were losing an absurd amount per car, but they've, they actually produced a slightly positive gross margin in Q4. So they're, you know, I, there's it, always there's always this sort of complicated thing it, uh, with the messaging around that around early production because it, you know, that's how people frame Tesla for years are losing this much per per car that's how people frame the the Chevy Bolt because there's a certain production rate you have to get to 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 be you know to start making money on on the vehicle or or the company uh, I think you 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 explained that well in in the video. Um, and the big question is, can they get to that scale? Not knowing the Chinese market, knowing the Chinese market is huge, but not really knowing it well. It's always hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, the there are, I I can't say who it was, but I talked to someone at a battery company that most people who follow EVs should know, um, and he had friends at uh, he had friends working, and he's been in this industry for a decade or so. Uh, he had friends working at Neo. And he was not not bullish on it, actually quite bearish on the company because of one, how hard it is to manufacture cars. Two, the big players in China have already committed to EVs, so it's not like it's not like ten years ago in the U.S. and Europe where the big auto was basically not going to do, you know, not going to get on board for a while. Big auto in China is on board, so so they're competing against very high production high quality manufacturers and then like you pointed out they aren't even manufacturing they've decided not to handle not to vertically integrate in that way so then then you have a limited degree of of of, of a lot of things without the vertical integration of the manufacturing and so this person just saw just didn't think the quality would be good enough on the car compared to big auto in china and that uh, it just wouldn't be able to grow to those production rates you pointed out were necessary to be financially sustainable. And it's just, you know, it's a decade, it's, it's, uh, Tesla's 15 years old or something. It's, uh, or I'm not sure if it's 15, but something around that. So it's, uh, 16, is it 16 now? Or something so like that. It's a different yeah. era, but it is a very attractive car and they seem to get everything right. And that's the challenge. It's like, it is, it seems like they have one of the best vehicle designs, packages, uh, ideas and they could potentially sell well in Europe and and US if they if they could find an opening there. But anyway, uh, so you still think that Neo could go the same way as Lucid and Fisker? They're not well, uh, out Neo of the woods yet. Already way ahead of all those companies because they're actually they've delivered tens of thousands of cars or yeah. like over ten thousand cars. So that's what that's what to me impressed Neo is like. At first, I was kind of like, okay, this is a joke. Who cares? Another multi billion dollar EV startup with nothing. And then it's like, okay, well, they have just did 500 million in revenue in a quarter out of nowhere. And like, I saw the cars, I was in Shanghai, like, sure, you know, it's, you go in the car and you're like, this is a really top notch, like luxury vehicle. I don't know how the battery goes. I didn't drive it, but they have like this, the AI assistant know me like, so uh, they, they're way farther ahead than almost any other EV startup that I can think of. And so that's kind of why I'm and like, the Chinese market is at a kind of an inflection point where it's. I mean, it's pretty wild how fast the market share of EVs is going. And if it rides yeah. that wave correctly, it could, it could have a little niche, a little, a little niche of the biggest auto market in the world, which accounts for over half of EV sales, right? 
Yeah, and they'll be a huge company, even if they just are a luxury OEM in China. So that, that's why I think there is huge potential. And what's also crazy you bring up is China's pushing for EVs super hard. Like my understanding is in certain cities like Shanghai or Beijing, the, subs- the USD subsidy equivalent is like 14, yeah. 10 to 15 grand per car. So like everyone's, you know, in the US, we've had the $7,500 tax credit for Tesla, which people think is crazy. But I always like to contrast that to like China, which is like thinking way more long-term and strategic about their government and their economy is putting a 15 or $10,000 like incentive, no matter what. So yeah. And they're, they're yeah. That's not even considering the incentives they put on the batteries already before that, you know, for manufacturing. Yeah. And they, and they have a good phase out plan for subsidies and this quota system, which is modeled after the California system, but, but modified. We talked to one of the California Chinese American California a uh, professor or researcher at UC Davis who helped China's elite <laughs> develop this plan. Uh, and it's, you know, they've just done everything really smartly, but there's potential for 8% EV market share this year. I mean, it's wild. We have Jose Pantes of EV wow. volumes of EV volumes doing the, these monthly China EV sales reports for us, uh, top quality. I don't think anyone does better in the world. Um, and uh, he's been blown away by how fast the, even it's grown and if you look at the january and february market share reports um there you know there's already indication that china could be at like eight percent this year or something something wild like that six to eight percent and then you know if it's an exponential growth curve you know it's we saw norway was at eight i remember when norway was at eight percent so you know it's like things change fast uh so what's your your overall thought on is there anyone in your opinion that has any real chance of, of competing or with Tesla in the, in the coming few years? Is there any point of talking about competition or is it all about EV makers disrupting uh, gas mobiles, as they call them? Yeah, I think that's Tesla's biggest competition is educating consumers about electric vehicles. And I think the internal combustion engine is still Tesla's biggest competition by far and will be for years. But if there's one EV company I had to pick, it would be, and that's actually the reason why is the efficiency ratio. Um, and that's like what I just did a podcast on on my channel about with um, Loop Ventures contributor Matt Joyce. And he's done some amazing work on the actual efficiency of Tesla's, the end product of what Tesla's built with like the amount of, of range that you get per kilowatt of energy is just way higher than every other automaker. And to me, that's evidence that there's some sort of a, something Tesla's doing is just miles ahead of the competition and years ahead. And so uh, I think it's going to be really hard for another EV like I don't see that gap shrinking. So I see Tesla as by far the leader in EVs. But if there's one uh, thing that I'm looking at that's a fringe sort of company is Rivian. I think Rivian and Amazon, like, yeah. I just think everything Amazon does is dangerous and they want to go. Amazon to- has some money. I heard Amazon has some money and I heard they already gave some to Rivian. So um, yeah, I would be looking for that because Amazon moves a lot of packages. They have a huge consumer brand, unlimited money, but they have never made a hardware play into transportation and EVs. And I think Rivian is that hardware play. And that's why I'm watching Rivian as like a very serious sort of EV player. I'll come back to, to Tesla, but that segues into another question Kanan had about, uh, uh, I don't know if you, did, if, if you had the idea for Amazon, uh, Amazon to purchase Whole Foods before it happened. Right. Uh, this, uh, we can skip to that now. So basically, um, I've noticed you have this uh, interesting tendency of wanting to sell companies to one another. And uh, your most famous example is, uh, you know, Amazon should buy Whole Foods, but there's also Ford needs to buy Rivian, Spotify should buy Joe Rogan, someone should buy Snap, please, Snapchat. 
And, you know, where's all this coming from? Like, how? Yeah, so that was, uh, it was a series that we started when I started the channel called Moonshot Monday, where I just sort of make a crazy tech moonshot that I think is like thinking ahead in the hyper change zeitgeist, like what is going to happen, what makes sense to just sort of get people interested about business and finance and like think outside the box. And so I just think it's a super fun exercise. And one of the first ones we made was Amazon should buy Whole Foods like three months before it happened. And we actually, I even said it should be at $42 per share. It went through at 40. And so that was originally how the channel actually got a lot of traction was when that happened. It was like, oh shit, like this was right. This guy predicted this. How how long before was it? uh, Three months. Three months. That's pretty. Yeah. You you think uh, they watch your channel as well? I mean, I don't know if Bezos is watching I would say you don't, you know, be, I've had someone, I don't know him personally, but someone told, told me that he reads Clean Technica. Uh, you'd be surprised at the number of conferences I've gone to where you talk to someone big and they follow these, you know, these niche, you know, our site or or other sites like ours. Um, and I'm sure certain channels, um, you know, important people are people too, right? <laughs> I mean, if he was watching, I made the whole Moonshot Monday about Ford buying Rivian and like really pitched that. And then the Amazon Rivian <laughs> thing happened. So you never know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It's a big, it's a big deal, but you know, you, you'd be, yeah. we, we're, I think we would all be surprised sometimes at, at, you know, how much influence uh, media can have. Uh, media is sort of undervalued due to democratization of publishing. Everybody can publish. So there's all this free publish, you know, no, there's a lot no of noise as well, no pay publishing, uh, which brings down the value of publishing. But at the same time, media is extremely important. Uh, going back to tele, so, you know, having several of these podcasts i'm always trying to put different puzzle pieces together we talked to you know ross gerber right after after both of us went on a factory tour arc invest after they've uh, interviewed elon musk on a podcast um there are all these different competitive advantages about tesla that you can pull out and talk about for hours and i think you did one of the best pieces ever on on the tesla moats um which obviously it's not a term <laughs> Elon likes to like to played with the term a little bit about moats, yeah. but um, but it's clear Tesla has certain moats, you know. But on the core level, it seems like it comes down to a handful of things. One, they've got this tremendous advantage in in battery production. They've got a tremendous advantage in battery design. Uh, then there's they've got a, a huge lead on auto, autonomous miles and, and autopilot pilot development on the hardware and on the software. Yeah, computer technology in general. Yeah, and and they've uh, basically, I mean, they're they're rolling in everything together in a package like there's no other package like it on the market. Uh, so you have this this company that has so much promise, and yet it still has so much criticism. What are your thoughts on on why this this company is either so pointedly attacked or so misunderstood? That's a tough one, or both. <laughs> Part of it is whenever you're doing something bold, different, and new, you get critics. And I think there's an echo chamber, frankly, occurring now across all of media, which, in, which journalists are more advertising salesmen than they are journalists. And that is a huge, huge problem. And shout out to Kanan. Does, I, am I saying your name right, by the way? Uh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. 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 You did the Pravda reports, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah, uh, resuming so, those soon again. Yeah. So that, exactly. So I think that's to me is it is just like people are uninformed. And this is why I'm really passionate about hyperchange when I'm doing with hyper charts and like getting the facts and data out. And what I think clean technique is doing is so important. Cause there's just, if you talk to your friends, like a lot of my friends, like isn't Tesla struggling or like 
aren't they having hard times? And I'm like, dude, not really. Like they're, you know what I mean? Like they're growing like crazy. Yeah, they have the absolutely. best product. They're just yeah. reported a profit. Like yeah. I think Tesla is crushing it. And so the amount of misinformation uh, is just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, so I, if you talk it to comes from sources, person. you wouldn't even expect, like for example, the New York times, and it's not just what it's, the amount they publish that's negative is just crazy for a huge organization that is trusted. It's so unexpected. So I have a theory, another theory on this, which is that there's like journalists egos. You have to factor in, like if I'm a journalist and my whole career is writing articles, like I want to break that negative story. I want to be the one who like took down Tesla and like showed their Achilles heel. So that's what they're all trying to do and look like the smartest guy in the room after 08 where being a skeptic all of a sudden turned out to be the right thing and be cool. And so I just think there's like, that is the whole thing. And honestly, talking to the journalists and like, you know, it, I'm just always kind of like, frankly, just embarrassed at like their lack of knowledge. And they're like, oh yeah, I've been following it for like two years. And I'm like, okay, I've been following this company for 10 years and they just kind of hop in and start. Yeah, I don't know. So I don't know if what, what, if it's making, what I'm saying is making sense because I, yeah, I don't know. Is, I can't is. put my finger on it. No, it is. I think... um it is shocking when you talk to normal people. So we all have friends or family in our life who are not in the Tesla bubble. And if you talk to them about Tesla, my, my, what I find interesting is you constantly have this response of, isn't that company like going to fail? Isn't that yeah. company failing? Isn't that, isn't that CEO like crazy, like on drugs and crazy? And aren't Teslas like totally unsafe? Like, uh, you know, I couldn't, I would never buy one because it's not safe, uh, either because it's too fast or because they sell something about fires. And, you know, I would, I, I had, I have a different perspective on that before doing the prop, you know, managing, overseeing the Pravda thing and, and after. When we started tracking and you started looking and grading all of these headlines, because we're doing it as, as a team to try to make sure we're not too biased about it. Yeah. Uh, so when you grade all these headlines and you go one after another, after another, after another, after another, and they have the same message, the same message, the same message, the same message, the same message. It starts to really sink into your head. This is like, this is like. Yeah, a, you don't have to trust our opinion necessarily. You know, we publish the raw data, take that document, delete our votes, vote yourself. And that is really an eye-opening experience. It's, you know? it's like, this is like a high quality, high level messaging campaign. Like, I mean, that's not necessarily what it is, but that's what it comes across as. You know, if you're doing a really high level political messaging campaign, you pick one or two messages and you hammer them home as many ways as you can as often as possible. And they hammer home this idea that Tesla's failing and about to collapse. And they hammer home this idea that Elon's crazy and they hammer home this idea that Tesla's are not safe. And that gets through to people because that's how it works. You know, if you do that repeatedly every day in obsessive fashion, uh, sooner or later, normal people pick up on it and that's all they know about the company because they don't follow the company. And then that has an effect. And you see this very effective in, in politics. I think I think our best article ever on this was from, it was a repost from EVNX. Roger Pressman, co-founder of EVNX, did this long piece on the Tesla smear and sort of pointed out it's not one thing. It's not big auto. It's not big oil. It's not bad media coverage. It's everything together. You You have all of these, you have big players have hugely threatened by Tesla that are for sure doing some work to discredit Tesla. And then you've got all these, you know, it all connects together in this big Tesla smear. And I think the question for, for me and for others is how do you get out of that? How do you get out, get beyond the smear? How do you get the smear off of the company's name with all of these average people who don't follow it obsessively and will never follow it obsessively? So what do you think on 
How I think you- the smear, I look at the smear as like a necessary symptom of an incredibly disruptive and successful movement or technology. Bit, you could say the same thing about Bitcoin. You read the Amazon everything store book. They had the same analyst saying that they had the analyst being like, they're going to run out of cash next quarter. This is, a, you know, they had the, and J- Be- Bezos went in the ironically Washington post and was like, this guy's hogwash, you know? So if he had Twitter, then it would have been the same. Like, so we've, I just think people, uh, there's just this mentality against change and that's also what it is. But like on the flip side, I'm an investor. Like I bought Tesla stock yesterday. I bought some on Friday, like this disparity in the market. Like I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And like, I see this as a huge opportunity to invest in a company. So, you know, I'm not complaining. I think it just takes time and continued execution by Tesla is like, people aren't dumb. You know, it's one thing to hear about Tesla failing and, and learn a comp and people throwing complex financial metrics at you that you can't understand. Like, don't they have a big debt payment coming due? Like if you're not a finance guy, that doesn't make sense. But, and if you've never seen the product, but now we're going to have thousands of cars on the road, you're going to see a model three. You're going to talk to your friend who has one. And it, that to me will, will alleviate the smear. It's just, you know, that kind of execution. Yeah, actually, Gali, that reminds me of a really important question. I actually really would like your opinion on, uh, at least for the last few years, normally, uh, the tendency would be, you know, bad news for Tesla, stock goes down, good news, stock goes up. It's kind of predictable, almost like a game you can debt you trade. And then I think somewhere maybe half a year ago, I don't know what changed, but it just stopped making sense, you know? Good news comes out, it goes down. Bad news comes out, it also goes down. Then nothing really happens for some reason, it goes back up. I just don't understand what's going on anymore. Have you noticed this as well? Yeah, and I think part of, I would correlate that to like Elon Musk's lacking communication. Like I don't think the media and everything's at fault here. I think Elon Musk has played into it, frankly, by committing to profitability, by constantly missing targets, by just like, just not really being as professional. And I think that just feeds into the, like, I, you know, that just validates a lot of the criticism in some ways on a surface level. And I think that has really, uh, yeah, so I just think Tesla's communication has sort of fallen by the wayside in the past year. And it started with the missing Model 3 targets. So I think that is more to blame. And I think once, I think Elon has actually learned from that and has been very cautious to sandbag actually in recently and i don't think we've seen the effect of that until the delivery numbers which could come out there's so so many long-term long-time uh investors and fans who are just like you know on forums or whatnot just begging elon like please underestimate (laughs) like of course they have to do their best job at forecasting but it's like please be pessimistic instead of optimistic for a couple of quarters you know so that so you end up you know uh uh, delivering it much more than than people. I think that's what they're doing for Q1, and I could be wrong, but and I, that's actually what I asked him at the last shareholder meeting is how it was asked Elon specifically, how can we trust your deadlines when they've been so so wrong? Like my confidence personally in what you say is eroded, and his answer was like, I don't know. I think it. I think it's a challenge. Sandbag. To- he mentioned sandbagging, so I'm hoping that like. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a challenge to if you look back in time. I mean. It, I mean, imagine putting yourself in Elon's shoes where you predicted in 2000, uh, when was it? 2006 was the secret master plan post. When you wrote down your secret master plan in 2006, it's now 13 years later and they've basically nailed it. I mean, they've nailed it like, what company has a 13-year plan that they nails so precisely? I mean, what company in such a dramatically dis- difficult way, you know, market as a newcomer, blah, blah, blah. I mean, so you must have a kind of feeling like, look, I'm right, you know, look, okay, I get some details wrong, but, you know, 
big picture, I'm right. You know, I was right about this, 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 this. We did all these things that everybody said was impossible. So I think you have this challenge then of, do I trust myself for this prediction, this forecast, or should I put in 20, 20% wiggle room or whatever? So, you know, it ends up becoming, I'm sure, a big challenge to, uh, but it's always been that this kind of, the shorter term, the kind of maximum one year forecast that I think are harder for, like where, you know, it takes a few months longer than expected. Yeah. And I wonder how much of this is also a symptom of just like the fast media environment. That's what I keep coming back to. Like maybe this isn't just Tesla. This is just like in society, a regard of like facts and data and actually really getting to the bottom of an issue is we're losing that. And I think that, you know, because there's so many issues coming at you faster than ever before, yet these issues are more complex than ever before. And so people are spending less time with more complex issues. And that's resulting in just like a very, like they don't understand what's happening. Yeah, it's a bit of a scary situation, in my opinion. But uh, on regarding the uh, how te- you know how 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 awareness about Tesla experience changes, you know, everybody says it's about getting people in seats, getting getting people to experience the car, to see the car, to drive the car, to hear, you know, from someone who owns a car. Uh, so you know, I had this sort of uh, idea um, with with Tesla's death death anniversary coming up with the, uh, the 11 year anniversary of the first uh, Tesla death watch blog, I thought, Hey, let's do something fun. We've got a lot of interest in this. We basically, we just threw out this idea, let, you know, everybody should host a Tesla event somewhere. You know, if you have a Tesla, if you're a Tesla fan, put, have, have a Tesla event on May 19th, 2019, the 11 year anniversary of Tesla's, you know, first death watch blog post. And, uh, there's, I, wow. I, I think, uh, I think it's going to get, I mean, it is popular. We have a, a lot of people uh, submitting entries, but we need to we need to make this something. like we did with Pravda. We need to have a kind of project team that manages it and, and deals with it. And uh, but I think this is this is the kind of thing you know, a kind of yearly event or or even more frequent frequently, where you pull people in who are not in the bubble necessarily. So you get people to have a parade, a scavenger, <laughs> a, a vehicle scavenger hunt. Uh, a big party, something that's, you know, going to be fun and you get people to, to experience Tesla. So, um, yeah, hopefully you can help to market that a little bit. I'll, I'll share more. Yeah, details. no, let me know. I love that idea. And I've actually been thinking about like a way that I can, you like, I don't know. I'm passionate. I'm so passionate about what the change that Tesla is bringing that like, I would love to get, like, I think people going in the streets is what needs to happen. But there isn't like, like with signs that have like smiley faces, that's like, we're doing it. We're going green. Like, this is the best news. Like, this is a cause that everyone should be happy about and like proud of and celebrating. And like, I think we need so much more of that in society. But uh, so, yeah, I'm all in. I think it's an amazing idea. And I think that's, yeah. So we'll, we'll rope you in. We're, I, think, I think it's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, it's really beyond just te- drive, drive, test drives and that kind of thing. It's about, you know, my, my deepest background academically, professionally is sociology. And I studied uh, socio- all different aspects of sociology, but social movements was part of that. And, uh, you know, when it, a lot of people will tell you, whether it's Ross Gerber, you, Nancy Fine, someone else, Tesla's not just a uh, company it's a it's a movement i mean this is really what, the, what there's a dramatic need for climate action there's a dramatic need to deal with other societal problems and there's a technological revolution happening and elon i would even say maybe elon musk is kind of a movement because it's he pulls together tesla spacex uh different different things and there's this giant movement of supporters who want to see positive progressive social change uh so when it comes to social movements 
as you were pointing out, you got to have people on the street. You got to have people physically go out and do something and make connections. So that, so I think that's, uh, that's definitely an important way forward in my opinion. So hopefully we'll, we'll get you involved and a lot of other influencers involved. Yeah. And what I think the Elon Musk movement, like you're saying, is what he's really captured is this idea that like the future isn't just what the future is going to be. The future is what we want it to be and what we decide and build it to be. And that's super inspiring. And I think that is the way that Tesla people view the world versus these non people are like, well, we're driving gas cars. So that's what's going to keep happening. It's like, yeah. I'm giving kind of an opening to come in. <laughs> what? No, 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 not at all. I'm just thinking uh, about one of the I next can, questions. I can chime in and cut in any time. I, I was, you know, uh, as you're, I, I think as you put out really well there, Elon's always built making stuff happen. He's all, he's always pushing people to try th- in the company is something we saw over and over with engineers is there's a clear push. If there's a 60% chance of success, try it. And if it doesn't work, you can revert. But you know, anything where there's like a 60% chance of success, try it. And they improve dramatically in that way. He's always, he, he involves one of the most fascinating things is how he is on Twitter because he responds to everyone. There's been a great, someone did some good research on this where he doesn't respond to people with you know, only you know, 50,000 followers or more. He responds to people with 12 followers. If you ever look at who he's responded to, you click through, it's like there'll be someone with six followers, 10 followers, 12 followers, 50,000 followers, 20 followers. He responds to everyone because he's very passionate about participatory everything. So he's always, he's involving people through, through Twitter. He, he, I think, pushes his, uh, his employees to be more involved than they would naturally be. And I think the whole part of Tesla is pushing society to get involved quicker than it, than it would naturally and, and, you know, hasten this important transition. Yeah. And, and building on that just really quick, the, what has really opened my eyes to Elon Musk, particularly and Tesla's, how they're different as a company is like the earnings call product that, that I was working on with say to like democratize the earnings call, let people vote. And like Tesla did that answered questions and like the whole, let's go to YouTube moment to give retail investors a voice. Like, no other company is doing that. And, you know, I'm having conversations now trying to get other companies to use this product and platform. And like, it's not that it's a great product that their customers and shareholders don't want. They just don't care about giving retail investors or the little guy a voice. Like they just, I don't know how to put it other than that. And like Tesla does care. And like, so it's even funny to me. It's not even just like replying on Twitter. It's like when you really work with Tesla, the company, they're like, we know the little guy only owns a tiny piece of stock. We know he's not doing this, but like we, he matters and, or he or she matters and their customers and we're going to give them a voice and democratize it. And I just like really, really respect that. I know kind of wanted to ask about that. So I'll let him do that. But, but yeah, I, I think it's, no, it was, yeah, that was basically the question. I mean, tell us more about that. I mean, the people who are probably interested, a lot of people have maybe heard some criticism or whatever, but it was like a really amazing moment when, uh, yeah, Elon Musk said, you know, he just out of the blue, let's turn to YouTube and. Well, we can, we'll have you rewind back to the very beginning of that story, wherever it starts. And then tell us about, you know, sort of your, your personal feelings going through it. I remember talking to Matt Pressman uh, about it after the fact, I think. And Matt is one of the most, this guy is so nice. Do you talk to him in person or you? you... No, I've never met him in person, but I talked to him. He's one of the nicest, coolest people. I love this guy so much. He's one of my favorite people in the world. Literally. Uh, He's just awesome. Uh, and we were talking about about that story, and he told me that you reached out to him, asking if you could potentially, you know, get on a conference call with Tesla. I think it was, uh, and he and he was like, "Oh no, no, come on, that's that's impossible. You can't. <laughs> you're not going to get." And and he was, you know, hugely shocked, surprised, 
that you did, but you, you can tell how, how it happened and what you felt and thought along, along the way. Yeah. So it started with my YouTube channel. I always make videos recapping Tesla's earnings and sort of like making fun of the analysts or just kind of like putting my own spin on it and like what I wish was asked. And finally, and I kept making jokes of like, maybe I should just get on. And then finally one quarter, this guy comments like, dude, get on the call. Like we would love to have you on the call. So I try to dial in. They won't let me dial in because I'm a but nobody. Even, but before, oh, this is, so this is, this before. is quarters before. Really? Okay. 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 And so I'm just giving a little backstory, but, um, and then, so finally I was like, okay, well this quarter, the next quarter, which was Q1 2018, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to launch a petition and plan. And so I put out a video moonshot Monday. One of my moonshots was hyperchange goes on the Tesla earnings call and gives retail investors a voice. And the way I did it was like, email me. Here's the head of uh, investor relations. I found his email. Here's Tesla's investor relations email. Here's my email. Email us with how long you've been a Tesla shareholder, how many shares you own, and that you want me to be on the conference call representing you. And I only have two shares, but I also sent an email. Actually. Yeah, thank you so much. And like literally, so I spent all night going through, tallying it up and like was like finally hit up Tesla, hit up the head of IR Martin. He was like, dude, this is so cool. Like you ruined my inbox, but like we just don't take emails <laughs> from like we don't take, we're not going to have you on. And then I was like, screw it. Well, I'm just going to pretend I didn't read that email, tweet it to Elon Musk, say I have hundreds of shareholders representing tens of millions of dollars that want me to ask a question. Can we do this? And he said, okay. So I was like, we're in. And when he says, okay, like things, things are moving. Martin calls me right back. It's like, this is a go. We're doing it. They like it. And um, so then heading into the call, I was super prepared, had all these questions. And then, uh, yeah, the whole let Elon got fed up and just like, you know, switch. <laughs> Luckily, I was prepared. Was Otherwise, a, I would have like one of, totally the most epic, one of the most epic Tesla conference calls ever. This is the bonehead. You know, this is the one where he calls bonehead questions where he gets fed up with the bonehead questions. It's a critical time in, in Tesla's entire history. And it's like, let's turn to YouTube. Yeah, it was insane. But um, and best that's what it's called. Ever. Best questions it, ever. It wasn't let's turn to YouTube. It was let's go from Wall Street people who don't care about the company to the little guys who actually do. And I was just the proxy for their questions. And yeah, it was crazy. No, that's, so, I mean, that's the way to see it. That's, that's the, that's why uh, I think it worked. That's why Elon cared about it. it. It is funny how you have to reach out to Elon for things like this. And this is a challenge. I've noticed this is a challenge. Uh, you know, you can, you can get good stuff. You can also get in trouble by trying to go directly to Elon because that yeah. goes around a lot of people whose job is to do certain things. And, and they're not super happy if you ever try to go around them to Elon, you know? So uh, not saying we tried to, just saying that, <laughs> not saying we, you know, let's just put it that way. That was the first portion of our conversation with Galileo Russell of Hyperchance TV. Thank you for listening and check in next time to get your electric fix.